Five years have passed since Iraq liberated Mosul from ISIS in a bloody street-by-street battle that left 11,000 civilians dead and much of the northern city in ruins. Millions fled the brutal three-year war of the terror group. Hundreds of thousands more fled the devastating fighting to recapture the city. But five years after the victory, several neighborhoods in Mosul still lie in ruins. Entire districts, reduced to blown-out shells of buildings, still stand largely empty. Even years after Iraq declared the fight against ISIS has ended, it continues to shape the political landscape. This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm Robert Tollist, and this week, we're looking at the legacy of the fight against ISIS and asking, when will Mosul be rebuilt? To get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they're out, just hit subscribe in your podcast app. And if you can leave a review while you're there, it would really help. Ahead of the fifth anniversary, the national Sinan Mahmoud was on the ground in Mosul to hear from those returning home and get an idea of the destruction that remains. In, in general, the, the, the city is in a fundamentally different place than it was in mid-2017 when it was liberated from ISIS. Noises from cranes knocking down unstable structures, bulldozers removing rubble and drill hammers are still reverberating across the city. But the pace of the reconstruction is still slow. Sinan had previously visited the city, most recently in 2020, when reconstruction efforts were disrupted by the global pandemic. He says the situation has improved since then, but power outages, a common story across Iraq, are frequent. Many residents affected by the war are still waiting for assistance to rebuild their homes. In the meantime, unemployment in the city remains high. Uh, Many Muslims complain about the economic situation, lack of jobs and the public services. Although uh, there are some improvements in public services, but uh, for example, the electricity is still shabby and residents see outages around the day, uh, especially now during summer, the temperatures are still uh, in their uh, 40s centigrade. The situation is a far cry from the optimistic tone struck by the Iraqi government when the city was liberated. On July 10th, 2017, then Prime Minister Haider al-Abadi declared victory in Mosul and said Iraq had broken the back of terrorism. But Iraq's old problems, tribal division, rampant corruption and foreign meddling in the country's politics would soon hinder Mosul's reconstruction. Iraq is religiously and ethnically diverse, with nearly 60% of the population Shiite Muslim, around 30% Sunni, and the remaining a mix of other ethnic and religious minorities, including Kurds, Yazidis and Christians. Iraq has lived through years of bloody sectarian violence after the US-led invasion. And while the situation had calmed down prior to the 2014 invasion by ISIS, the rise of the terror group stoked old divisions. But in liberation, there was a sense of unity. Omar al-Nadawi is the programme director of US organisation Education for Peace in Iraq. He lived in Iraq in the years following the US-led invasion and witnessed the worst years of sectarian violence that followed. Like millions of Iraqis, he watched the Iraqis advance into Mosul and felt that the country might finally be able to heal, having united against the terrorists. There was a moment of, of hope across Iraq and uh, in the immediate aftermath of the liberation of Mosul and especially in, uh, you know, the predominantly Sunni capitals, there was a level of optimism that was not, you know, that had not been seen in a long time. People were seeing the country, were feeling that the country was moving in the right direction. But the optimism proved short-lived. Iraq's second city, a former Silk Road centre of multiculturalism and heritage, lay in ruins. 
there was no power, water or public services, and at least 50,000 buildings had been levelled or seriously damaged. The government announced a 10-year reconstruction programme, but said the then low price of oil meant that it would struggle to pay for the costs. There was an international donor conference in 2018 in Kuwait to get funds for reconstruction, but it raised only about $15 billion in grants. The rest were pledges and loans. And even then, the money pledged took years to trickle through. And so progress has been slow on the ground. Except many Iraqis point out that their country earns billions in oil revenue. Indeed, combined government budgets, including oil revenue and borrowing, has amounted to over $350 billion since the battle ended. With oil prices surging in 2022, Iraq earned $60 billion in the first half of the year alone. And yet, the Norwegian Refugee Council says one out of three schools in Mosul has not yet been adequately repaired or replaced. 100,000 people from the city are still displaced and can't return home. So what's actually going on with Mosul's reconstruction? The problem throughout Iraq's budget, throughout Iraq's financial planning, is that the priorities reflect the interests of the, of the ruling class, of the political elites, not those of the country. You have a, an organization like the Religious Endowments, okay, which serve no practical function. They don't really provide real services to the population. Their budget is large for 2021 was larger than the budgets allocated to the to the agriculture and water resources ministries combined. A country that you know takes pride in saying that it invented it is the place where agriculture where it was invented, the land of the two rivers, which is facing a severe drought where agriculture is about is, is, is facing you know an existential threat where farmers are facing an existential threat where food security is facing an existential threat the agriculture and water resources ministries combined get less money than the religious endowments and that is a i think just a stark example of the failure of of planning Omar says that the haphazard allocation of funds, which included several investment projects the World Bank advised against, reflects a wider problem with Iraq's political class. While the devastation from the war against ISIS was massive, as Omar pointed out, it's far from the only issue. He mentioned the droughts and food crisis, and there's also a crumbling healthcare system, high unemployment, electricity shortages, and many other competing demands on public resources. The 10-year government reconstruction plan also included a lot of money for areas not impacted by the fight against ISIS. That raised the question, why did Iraq need additional aid funding? After all, cities such as Basra in the south had not benefited from previously high Iraqi oil revenues and multi-billion dollar budgets. Iraq massively increased government spending in 2019 and borrowed heavily during the COVID-19 pandemic. But Iraq's political elites favoured spending on public salaries, which experts say is a method to shore up political loyalty. A lot of this funding has gone on security spending, which has crowded out reconstruction funding, placing further strain on cities like Mosul. As well as a bloated military, the government is footing the bill for a collection of Iran-backed militias, but the exact size of the force is unclear. Many of these were hastily formed to bolster the collapsing military when ISIS invaded in 2014. Although the battle is done, 
there's no sign these militias will lay down arms. They now control large swathes of Iraq's territory, including land around Mosul, and have launched an intimidation and assassination campaign against opponents, including activists, protesters, and rival politicians. These militias, called the Popular Mobilization Forces, or PMF, also have the political backing of a large number of MPs. Iraq still needs an army. Iraq still needs a, a large police force. But there is also the fact that there is a lot of waste in these, in these ministries. Iraq does not need 700,000 policemen. And, you know, um, so there is the disease that has affected and impacted all of Iraq's ministries also affects these ministries, and that is that they have become welfare programs to distribute money to keep the population happy. So that, that, there's that part. And then you have the PMF, where the, the budget is rising because it also has become a slush fund for the, the warlords of the PMF. Back in 2017, uh, then Prime Minister Abadi said, well, we have 150,000 fighters on payroll, even though there are only 60,000 actual fighters. And he said at the time that the uh, accounting director of the, uh, of the PMF, who related these figures to him, was assassinated a few days after that. Uh, now, two weeks ago, uh, during the anniversary of the formation of the PMF, a, a PMF official told the Iraqi National News Agency uh, that there are now 169,700 on payroll. Now, that is almost 20,000 more than there were on the books at the height of, of the war with ISIS. Where does that money go? So Baghdad's decision to spend more on salaries and security at the expense of reconstruction goes a long way to explaining why, five years after liberation, Mosul still lies in ruins. For many in Mosul, their post-conflict opinion of the government is tied to their view of the military that fought to liberate the city, as well as the security on the ground today. After the war, many Sunnis feared a return to the chaos that followed the US invasion. You know, there was evidence that surfaced of, of abuses and atrocities in, in multiple provinces, you know, torching of villages and uh, destruction of property, wanton destruction of property, the... Uh, you know, the mass disappearance of, of large number of people, large numbers of people from uh, from districts, from, you know, villages and rural areas that were under ISIS control and were retaken by the PMF. Some of those militias in the march towards Mosul were involved in the sectarian violence after 2003 and accused of numerous rights violations. But the militias didn't advance into Mosul in the battle. Instead, the lead was taken by Iraq's counter-terror forces. This was a huge reassurance to many fearful residents. Omar describes how, when Iraqi soldiers advanced through East Mosul and assisted civilians, many of the community's fears melted away. And so, trust in the military rose after the Battle of Mosul. You know, they had favorable views of the, of the military, of the political leadership under Abadi, uh, even on, of, of the, you know, the bulk of perhaps of the PMF, people were less afraid of militias at the time than they had been in, say, 2014 or even 2015. Omar also says that although they'd proved themselves in combat, 
The Counterterrorism Service's advance into Mosul was not born of military necessity. Instead, war planners decided the PMF militias would need to be kept at arm's length, given their reputation. That itself was a combination of very hard work and a lot of effort by the pushback by the coalition and by, by Abadi and by the CTS to make sure that the PMF stay in the rear. They do you know, perimeter security and things like that, holding and securing retaking territory rather than you know, advancing into, into towns, whether it was you know, Fallujah or Tikrit uh, or Mosul. The counterterrorism forces, or CTS, emerged as the heroes of the Battle of Mosul. Trained by the US, this largely Shiite force also has a strong component of Sunni and Kurdish recruits. From the onset, they were keen to show their loyalty to Iraqis rather than foreign powers. And they paid a steep price for liberating the city. I'm David M. Whitty. I'm retired uh, Army Colonel, a Special Forces officer. And I did a couple tours in Iraq advising the CTS. And uh, I teach, uh, I'm an adjunct professor now for uh, Norwich University. Mr. Whitty, who has chronicled the history of the CTS, says the unit rebranded themselves after the ousting of Abadi's predecessor, Nouri al-Maliki, who was seen as using the CTS as a personal militia force. A 2015 Iraqi inquiry into the 2014 fall of Mosul blamed Maliki for many of the failures in the run-up to the city's fall. Maliki had indeed tried to take control of the CTS, but the force was able to regain its political independence, particularly after Maliki was removed from office in 2014. They stressed repeatedly that they were fighting to Iraq, that they were loyal to the nation, not to any one person, you know, meaning not to who the particular prime minister was. You know, that really came back, came about, you know, really after, after the fall of Mosul, they really started to emphasize that stuff because, frankly, they were kind of perceived as, you know, Maliki's hit squad for a while. And, uh, but that really changed. And uh, yeah, so they 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 totally kind of transformed their image, and uh, you know they're still they're still very popular. Mr. Whitty says that the CTS were able to display a different side to the Iraqi public within days of advancing into Mosul. I think it really helped change the image of the Iraqi security force. You know, the CTS they had field hospitals that were treating civilians. Uh, you know, they said many times that they took uh, heavier casualties than they would have if it wasn't for all the considerations they gave to the civilians. You know, and they, so they made a lot of sacrifices to do that. And of course, there were still a, a lot of civilians killed in the Battle of Mosul. After some initial efforts to win over civilians in the east of the city, Iraqi government efforts then turned to the heavily built-up west side. It was there that the battle descended into a highly destructive bloodbath as ISIS made their last stand. A major problem was that the CTS had experienced extremely high casualties and were less able to take part in the west of the city. So yeah, they yeah they really they really turned it around overnight. But they they did suffer this horrendous casualties, particularly in the Battle of Mosul. Uh, they almost became combat ineffective. As a matter of fact, at the very end of the battle, they they had run out of officers that could even command. Just to you know, just to shrink in the very last. And everyone had been wounded, and people continued to stay in the uh, in the fight to the end. You know, even though they had been wounded and. Uh, they never did really formally release what their casualty figures were, but uh, you know they, you know the U.S. estimated they were at least fifty percent just during the, the first battle of, of East Mosul. As the CTS were worn down by heavy casualties, Iraq's federal police led the fight with heavy firepower. 
the federal police, they played a large role in the battle for West Mosul, but they, uh, they used some really rough methods. You know, they had, a uh, you know, artillery area fire weapons and they would just, just pour those on the city, particularly in the old Mosul, you know, without, you know, adjusting fire or realigning their mortar aiming stakes and all that kind of stuff. Just, you know, there's footage of it, you know, you can see on the, on the internet, just, just pounding away the city and, Civilians would try to move out of the, the, the line of advance of the federal police and into Eric to the line of advance of the CTS because, you know, they knew they would receive a better treatment. Some were able to return home, largely to the less damaged east side of the city. And those who did had restored faith in the government that was reflected in national elections in the following year. Omar al-Nadawi explains this changing political dynamic. saw that reflected in the, in the way Ninawa uh, and Mosul voted in 2018, whereas in the rest of the country, the, you know, the uh, people were sick and tired of, of, of the political class. They sat out the vote, largely voted out of the vote. Numbers were, what, 44.5%, I think, were the national um, figures. And a lot of people think those numbers were exaggerated, that they were actually much lower than that. Whereas in Nino, it was 53%, was the highest level of turnout. And like, then that reflected, you know, for a, for a province that had nearly rejected the constitution in 2005, that sat out the elections in 2005, for that same province to come out, come back and, and become the most enthusiastically voting in, in, in elections. I think that's, that's something that, that says a lot. But this optimism and trust hadn't lasted. Here's Sinan again. So in general, on both sides, um, the residents say they are happy with the improved security situation in their city. And that allowed many aspects of their lives to return to normal. Uh, Many markets have been rehabilitated with stores filled with goods and buyers bargaining salespersons. They have an active nightlife. You can find families going out for a walk or for shopping or having dinner or attending cultural activities. But they are complaining about the lack of funds from the government to rebuild their houses. And that delay has forced them to use their own money while waiting for the compensation to come from the government because paying rents has become a burden for many of them. The Iran-backed PMF militias soon entrenched themselves in the towns and villages around the city taxing goods on major roads and muscling in on business within the city. This new security arrangement for Mosul, often with complicit local elites, had started to break down trust with the government. And so too has the lack of assistance in rebuilding. This nexus of corruption and mafia-style militias has hindered reconstruction. That presence has, I think, been very important for factions like Asab al-Haq, Hezbollah and their proxies, uh, you know, Brigade 30, Shabbat militia and whatnot, to, um, you know, to um, extract material gain from these areas, illegal checkpoints, illegal taxation, um, manipulation, I think, of, of uh, reconstruction and compensation uh, funds that are going to the, to the victims of, of the war with ISIS. Uh, in, in, interference in the politics of, of Muslim interference in mm-hmm. manipulation of the local economy, 
Uh, the, I think the property market, the real estate market, government properties there, uh, a lot of businesses uh, that have been, uh, and I think there was a, an entire report on just the, the scrap metal industry, how that was cornered by, by, the, uh, by some of the militia factions. And this is of major concern for people like Omar. He says this competing mix of factions and foreign interests could become Iraq's next flashpoint, one that could have consequences almost as serious as the rise of ISIS. I think perhaps the, the seed for the next crisis, and that's kind of like Iraq's you know, problem, is that the conclusion or the resolution of each crisis sort of plants the seed for the next one because the solutions are usually far from ideal and involve a lot of strange bedfellows and people and, you know, alliances that are made out of convenience and very reluctant alliances. No, really alliances, but just uh, tactical alignments of, of, of powers that happen for a, for a specific purpose. And when that purpose dissolves, what's left is those historical uh, hostilities and, and rivalries. Thanks this week to Sanan Mahmoud in Mosul, Omar al-Nadawi and David Whitton. I'm Robert Tollest and we were produced this week by James Haynes-Young, Aisha Khan and Erica el To get all the latest episodes of Beyond the Headlines as soon as they come out, click subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And if you can leave a review while you're there, it makes all the difference. <laughs>